Last week, we concluded our study of the book of Proverbs. And tonight, we start studying a new book, the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes before, or if you started reading it in advance for our study, you'll soon realize that the book of Ecclesiastes is very different from the book of Proverbs. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is a very strange book. And it's so strange, in fact, that there were lively debates among schools of Jewish rabbis as to whether this book, Ecclesiastes, should even be considered Holy Scripture, whether it, as they put it, defiles the hands. Is Ecclesiastes truly the inspired sacred word of God? Why these debates over this book? Well, if you read it, you'll realize that the perspective on life that Ecclesiastes takes seems to be a pretty hopeless, despairing, bleak kind of perspective. Just look at the opening verse. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This word vanity which is hevel in the Hebrew. It's often translated by abstract concepts like vanity or futility or meaningless. And it seems to be saying that all of life is meaningless, all is futile, all is absurd. There's actually a more concrete meaning to it though. Hevel refers to a breath, that kind of quick fleeting breath the merest vapor of a breath, the kind of breath that you breathe out on a cold winter's morning. And for a moment, you see the vapor, and then it's gone. It's vanished. That is hevel. As one translator translates the opening verse, merest breath, all is mere breath. And then, this is not the only time that this kind of perspective, this bleak perspective is stated. All throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the author seems to be saying that all of life is meaningless. It's vain. It's mere breath. Just look at what he says in the opening of chapter 4, where he looks out and he sees all of the oppression in the world, all of the tears of the oppressed. And what does he conclude? The dead are more fortunate than the living. Even wisdom itself, he suggests, is pointless, vain, and meaningless. So you can see why these rabbis debated whether this is Holy Scripture, whether this is the Word of God, because it seems to be completely contradicting what we read in books like Proverbs, that the pursuit of wisdom is a pursuit that brings meaning and value and goodness and happiness to life. Ecclesiastes has a much bleaker, darker perspective on things. Ecclesiastes reminds me of the skit that Saturday Night Live used to have, a series of skits all about Debbie Downer. And Debbie Downer was this character, and whether she's at a birthday party or whether she's at Disney World, wherever happy gathering she happens to be at, Debbie Downer is the one who brings everyone down in the party. No matter what people are trying to celebrate, all she wants to talk about is the injustice and the despair and the tragic news of life. But Ecclesiastes isn't just like Debbie Downer. Sometimes Ecclesiastes seems bleak and pessimistic, and sometimes 
Ecclesiastes reminds me more of Billy Joel, who talks about how only the good die young. And what you need to do in life, since we're all going to die, is just grab as much joy and pleasure as you can while we're still alive. Look at what the author of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Or look again what he says in chapter 8, verse 15. Man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Now, not only is this, this sentiment seems to be inconsistent with what he said in the beginning. All of life is mere vanity, pointless, meaningless. What's the point? Here we have not hevel, not all is mere breath, but a philosophy, a perspective of life that scholars refer to as Ecclesiastes carpe diem, seize the day philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This too seems to be very much against what we read in the rest of Scripture. Life is not all eating and drinking and merrymaking. Life is about the fear of the Lord. So how do we reconcile these things? What is it that the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us? From the first week of our study together, I've been suggesting that the wisdom that we find in Scripture is a wisdom that's rooted in the recognition of the goodness and the order and the patterns of creation. I use that phrase, wisdom is living with the grain of the universe, with the grain of creation. But of course, the creation that we live in and that we experience is not just a creation that's good, not just a creation that's ordered, it's also a creation that is fallen. It's a world filled with pain and tragedy and suffering and injustice. It's a world of futility. And this is what Ecclesiastes is recognizing. And Ecclesiastes is not the only book of the Bible that calls our attention not to the goodness of creation, but to its, its fallenness. We find the exact same sentiment expressed by the Apostle Paul. What does he say in Romans 8, verse 20? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. This word that Paul uses for the futility of the creation, its subjection to futility. This word in Greek, matoiotes, this is actually the same word that the Greek translators of Ecclesiastes used to translate the word hevel, vain, futile, meaningless. And it's interesting because it's one of the only times that the Apostle Paul uses this word. And he may, in fact, be referencing Ecclesiastes himself, himself. But the point is, Paul is making the same observation that Ecclesiastes makes, that the world we now live in, we now experience, is not just a world full of wonder and goodness and grace, 
It's also a world filled with suffering and tragedy and heartache. It's a world that has been subjected to futility. The question is, what does it mean to live wisely in the world that is not just good, but a world that is ruptured? In this world that is fallen, what one theologian calls the devastation. Ecclesiastes and its focus on the devastation and futility of this fallen world. It reminds me of another philosopher, another wise sage, Blaise Pascal. Pascal was a 17th century polymath. He was brilliant in all kinds of ways. He was a leading mathematician, physicist, inventor. He has invented the first calculating machine in the Western world. And he was also one of the greatest philosophers in this heady day of Enlightenment philosophy. And Pascal, though, went against the grain of a lot of other Enlightenment philosophers of his day who had wonderfully optimistic views of the modern world and its progress. Here are some of the things that Pascal says when he looks out on the world and what he observes. Anyone who does not see the vanity of the world, he says, is very vain himself. So who does not see it, apart from the young people, whose lives are all noise, diversions, and thoughts of the future? Or what about this one? We are so unwise, Pascal says, that we wander about in times that do not belong to us and do not think of the only one that does so vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. Or here, here's one of my favorites. If our condition were truly happy, he says, we should not need to divert ourselves from thinking about it. Now, Pascal, in his Pensees, which is where he says all these things about the wretchedness of the world, as he calls it, the vanity of the world. He's not all dreary and bleak all the time. In many ways, Pascal affirms the goodness of creation. He is a Christian. He is a Catholic Christian. And he looks out on the world and he sees a world of goodness and purpose and order, but also a world that has been subjected to futility. And one of the main points that Pascal makes in his argument on behalf of Christianity which is what his pensees were intended to be. One of the main points that he makes for Christianity is he says that Christianity is the only philosophy and the only religion that exists that embraces and does justice to both of these fundamental realities of life. That the world we experience is a world filled with goodness and wonder and beauty and simultaneously a world of wretchedness, vanity, and futility. And this is exactly what Ecclesiastes is doing. Ecclesiastes is wisdom. It's about how to live wisely in this world. And it's helping us to live wisely by helping us come to terms with the ruinous effects of a world that was created good and is suffering devastation. Ecclesiastes forces us to reflect 
on realities that we would often rather avoid, that we often divert ourselves from, as Pascal says. So even though it seems bleak, Ecclesiastes is a source of wisdom. But that in and of itself doesn't resolve all of our problems. Just to say that Ecclesiastes is wise because it helps us come to terms with the tragic aspects of life. It still seems to express viewpoints that run counter to what we believe as Christians and to what we read throughout the rest of Scripture. So what do we do with these wrong teachings when Ecclesiastes says things that seem to so directly contradict what we read elsewhere in Scripture? How can we reconcile this? How can Ecclesiastes really be the Word of God? I want to suggest two keys to help you as we read through this book, two things that we need to understand about the book as a whole that will help us in reading it. The first is we need to understand that there are two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are two different authorial voices, and the interaction between them is very important. The first voice, the one that speaks for a vast majority of the book, is the voice of Kohelet, which we often translate as the preacher. You see this character get introduced in the very first verse of the book. The words of the preacher, the words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what this word Kohelet means. It comes from a Hebrew verb that references gathering and collecting and assembling things. And so many people have suggested that Kohelet is a preacher or a teacher who gathers the people together, who addresses the assembly. It could mean, of course, that Kohelet is the assembler, one who gathers sayings and, and observations of the wise. We also don't know exactly who Kohelet is supposed to be. Is this a historical person or is it a literary character? In many ways, Kohelet seems to be Solomon. After all, he's described as the son of David, king of Israel. And Solomon is the character in the Bible who is blessed with the gift of wisdom. So many Christians and many Jewish readers have interpreted Kohelet as Solomon himself. But there's good reason to think that this may not be Solomon, but in fact a sort of literary, a literary representation of Solomon. Martin Luther, when he was commenting on the book of Ecclesiastes, he read it and he came to the conclusion that Kohelet was not Solomon himself. Here's what Luther says. This book is too fragmentary. It has neither boots nor spurs. It only rides on stocking feet. I had to look that phrase up, by the way. Luther means that Ecclesiastes doesn't speak with strength. And he goes on, I do not believe that Solomon himself wrote the book, but it was composed at the time of the Maccabees by Sirach. However, it is a very good book and useful because it contains much excellent teaching about how a household should be run. So that's Luther's verdict on this. He doesn't think that Solomon himself wrote the book. He thinks it was written later in the time of the Maccabees. 
And most modern scholars have actually followed Luther on this and agree that the book of Ecclesiastes was probably composed much later than the life of Solomon himself, but still that it is collecting a lot of Solomonic wisdom and that it's using Solomon as a sort of literary character that we hear speaking throughout the book. So Kohelet, the preacher, this Solomon-like character, this is the main voice that we hear speaking throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But Kohelet is not the only voice speaking. There is another voice as well. Consider, for instance, this voice that we hear speaking at the very end of the book in chapter 12. Besides being wise, we read, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep the commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Who is this who is speaking about the preacher in the third person? It's not Koalet himself. It's another voice that comes in at the epilogue, and it's probably the same voice that's speaking in the introduction. And this is the voice that scholars often refer to as the frame narrator. He's the narrator because the narrator is the one who's actually authoring the book, who's collected the sayings of Kohelet. He frames Kohelet by speaking both in the introduction and by giving an epilogue. And this is very important because this epilogue is the key to reading this book. The frame narrator, narrator recognizes that Coalette is a voice of great wisdom and that Coalette has known and, and has spoken many truths. At the same time, the frame narrator helps us to feel a little bit of distance from Coalette because he is the one who gets the last word. And so this helps us to read the book because it recognizes that Whatever Coalette might be saying, whatever wisdom we glean from his words, there is a final authorial voice. There is a narrator who gets to have the last word, who gets to judge what Coalette speaks. And when we read the epilogue, we're supposed, therefore, as readers, to look back and to take what Coalette has said with a grain of salt and to judge its truth for ourselves. So that's one key to reading this book. Keep in mind that there are two voices that you're reading. There's the voice of Coalette, the preacher, but there's also the voice of the narrator, who in his epilogue tells you that the end of all things is to fear God and keep his commandments. And you should judge what Coalette says accordingly. There's a second key that I want to give you as you read this book, and that's to pay attention to the role of this phrase, under the sun. What is Coalette's method in seeking wisdom? And why does he use this phrase, under the sun, to describe it? Look what Coalette says in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And look, all is vanity, and a striving after the wind. This phrase, under the sun, 
or under heaven. It occurs 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this tells us something really important about this book and about Coalette's method of seeking wisdom. Coalette says that he searches out by wisdom, but his way of searching out and looking for meaning in life, trying to discover happiness with all that he sees, is a method that keeps his observations purely under the sun, which is to mean that Coalette looks for truth and meaning purely with what he can see and what he can sense and what he can observe in this world. That is the limit of his understanding of life, is, is purely what he can see now. And some scholars who read this book, they, they talk about this as Coalette's autonomous approach of seeking wisdom. And in that sense, Coalette, what he's doing is actually very similar to the Greek philosophy of his day. The Greek philosophers prided themselves on their autonomous way of looking after wisdom. They weren't simply going to receive what was handed down to them or what might be written in some sacred book. They were going to look out on life and find truth for themselves. And that's what Coalette is doing. He's taking up this Greek method of looking out to life for himself. What can he observe and what meaning can be gleaned from it? What's interesting is if you read to chapter 7, it's clear that Coalette's search for wisdom begins to be undermined. And he realizes that the wisdom that he's been using seems to be futile in and of itself, which again is a clue to us as readers to step back and to think maybe the wisdom that Coalette is using is not a true, full, proper understanding of wisdom as the Bible means it. Maybe Coalette is just looking out on life himself and is not approaching it from the vantage point of someone who fears God. Coalette's search is a search for meaning and for happiness, but only as it can be found within this world. And his final, his final judgment on that search is that it's impossible. It's all vain. It's all futile. It's all absurd and mere breath. Meaning and happiness cannot be found purely within this life. In that sense, Coalette reminds me of another character, and this time from a novel. If you've ever read Walker Percy's novel, The Moviegoer, then you might know about the character Binks Bowling. And Binks Bowling is, uh, is, is a successful Southern man um, who has a, a good professional life and lives in a comfortable situation. But something bothers him. He feels like the life he is living is not a life that's truly meaningful. He starts to go to movies all the time. He starts wondering about what the purpose of anything is because even though his life is comfortable, it doesn't seem to be fulfilling. And so he sets out on what he calls his search. And here's how he describes his search. What is the nature of the search, you ask? The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. To become aware of the search is to be on to something, not to be on to something 
is to be in despair. So Binks sets himself out on this search, this search to find true meaning, true happiness. Ultimately, it ends up not really getting him anywhere. His search never yields to what he's looking for. And in many ways, that's exactly what Coalette's doing. Coalette has set himself to the task of trying to identify meaning and purpose and happiness and something that lasts within this world of sorrow, this world that is passing. And the wisdom that he gives us, the truth that he pans down to us, is the truth that in a world without God, in a world without the hope of the resurrection and the hope of glory, as we like to say as Christians, in this world, if there is nothing else, ultimately all is vain, all is futile, all is meaningless in the world without God. I think that that's one of the reasons that Ecclesiastes is such a powerful book for today. Because today we live in a world, much like Ecclesiastes was confronting in his day with the Greek philosophers, we live in a world that feels like a world that has been bereft of God. Charles Taylor, who's the great philosopher who wrote a long book on what it feels like and to be a person in the modern age and what he describes as a secular age. He says that so many of us today live with a sense that this world is all there is. There is nothing that transcends our experience. We live in what Taylor calls the imminent frame. This world is all there is. But Charles Taylor says that people who live in that way experience a sense of loss. There is a malaise, as he calls it. There is a, a sense of unease that accompanies this way of living in the world. And we may respond to this sense of unease, this sense of loss, by trying to throw ourselves into work to give us meaning or into pleasurable experiences or simply trying to distract ourselves. But Ecclesiastes is forcing us to pay attention, not to distract ourselves. Ecclesiastes wants us as modern people to recognize that, yes, this world is beautiful, but it is also marred by death. And if we want to live wisely, we have to come to terms with that fact. I have my own experience of this in coming to terms with the bleaker aspects of life as I think of it. When I was in undergrad, especially during my sophomore and junior year, I went through a period where I felt pretty depressed and a little despondent. And not a little bit had to do with what I was reading at the time. As you might expect, I'm someone who likes to read books. And even during college, I like to pick up things on the side, things that seemed interesting to me. And I went through a phase in college where I read quite a number of books that were pretty tragic, pretty sorrowful. I read this book called There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz. And it's a book that describes, it's a kind of biography of these, these two brothers, these two young boys who are growing up in the projects in Southside Chicago. What it's like, their everyday life that they experience, what kind of pain and suffering 
that they have to live through. I remember reading the book A Long Way Gone, which is a memoir of a boy soldier in Sierra Leone talking about his kidnapping and then being drugged and being forced into this brutal life as a soldier and watching this with so many other young boys and adolescents in his day. It was about that time I also read the book Silence, the novel by the Japanese author Shusaku Endo, which is all about these 17th century Japanese Christians and these Jesuit missionaries who were trying to bring the gospel to them and the horrendous persecution that they experience and the apparent silence of God throughout all of their suffering. It should probably be no surprise that I was feeling a little despondent during this time in my life. And I don't necessarily recommend that you read these books. They are quite tragic. But this was really an important experience for me. It was something that God used. God used it to awaken me to the fact that I lived in a world that was not just filled with goodness, not just filled with happiness and beauty, but a world that had also been marred and devastated by pain, and by suffering, and by heartache. And what this did for me is it forced me to come to terms with my faith and to, to determine that if I was going to continue life as a Christian, I was not going to be a casual Christian, someone who just added this religion to my otherwise meaningful life. Because I had seen, I had been exposed to the futility of a world rent by injustice and death and despair. If I was going to be a Christian, then I was going to dedicate myself entirely to it. Because only the hope of resurrection, only the hope of glory could give meaning to a life such as this. And that's what we experience with the book of Ecclesiastes when we're reading it. We experience a wisdom that teaches us that all of our pursuits of meaning and purpose, if they are located only in this life, they are ultimately hollow promises that cannot fulfill. True wisdom comes not from distracting ourselves, but from facing squarely the darker, more painful aspects of life and learning how to live in a world that is both good and fallen and to recognize how all of our pursuits are only ultimately given meaning because of the hope that we share together. <laughs>